I am Caroline Ra, and you're listening to Spirit of the Dawn Podcast 4. Today, part three of a three-part podcast, The Michael Teachings, with spiritual teacher and author, Shepard Hoodwin. Every single day since whence I awake, I feel the same, somehow I have changed. Could you the people of the street? Yeah, made me feel it. Somehow life is sweeter every day. Somehow life is sweeter every day. Hey, uh, you've gotta find a time to change. Gotta find a time to find this time to embrace the colors, fine lines and shades. It makes this place, it makes this place great. I'll embrace the change. Whoa, whoa, I'll embrace the change. Whoa, whoa. From beautiful Ashland, Oregon, I am Pleiadian Emissary of Light, Caroline Ra. Thank you all for joining me today. Welcome to Spirit of the Dawn. I am delighted to be sharing with you part three of a three-part podcast with my guest, Shepard Hoodwin. Shepard is a compassionate and wise spiritual teacher who channels Michael, a causal plane group entity who teaches system that shows us how we set up each lifetime here on Earth. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at the Michael chart Shepard prepared for me and exploring the overleaves or personality choices I made before I began this lifetime as Caroline. To get more out of today's podcast, you can view the chart that Shepard prepared for me by visiting spiritofthedawn.com and clicking on Part 3 of the Michael Teachings with Shepard Hoodwin and then clicking on the link you'll find there. Now let's continue our conversation with Shepard. Well, Shepard, we are having an amazing time here, and we are ready for the overleaves that I chose to create this incarnation of Caroline. So can you help uh, explain my chart for me? Yes, overleaves um, are personality traits that overlay your essence, your soul. You know how uh, in science class, there would be an anatomy chart and you could pull over another clear panel that would diagram the stomach and then you do another one that would diagram the lymphatic system and so forth. Those are called overleaves. And the bottom half of the chart concerns the overleaves that you chose to give you a more specific personality. If you've ever done any past life regression, you may have observed that just how different your personality can be from lifetime to lifetime, uh, maybe some of them not even recognizable to you as having been you, and yet it still shares the same essence, the same soul. You're still you. It's the same person looking out through the eyes, but in a, a very different uh, outer context. So the overleaves are chosen before every lifetime to give you the experiences you want to have in that lifetime to fulfill your life tasks, to pay back your karmas, to complete what Michael calls monads, which are learning experiences and so forth. Uh, There's a couple items uh, on the chart under overleaves, needs and life quadrant that are a little different from the others, so we'll cover those first. There are nine needs. This is the first time we've veered from the system of seven. And it just goes to show that the universe is a flexible place and you can't be too dogmatic about, well, it's always seven or it's always 12 or it's always nine or whatever. There are nine needs, meaning that there are nine human 
experiences that we each have, but we prioritize differently in different lifetimes. Your number one need in this lifetime is adventure. And this is adventure however you define it. Uh, For a warrior, it might be bungee jumping. But for you as a sage, it could be something entirely different. But for you to complete your life task, you need to have adventure. Second, you need to be able to express yourself, which is uh, kind of a no-brainer for sages. You have to express yourself anyway. And your number three need out of the nine is communion. Communion is the need for community. It's to feel connected to the people around you. Do those fit for you? Yes. Um, now, adventure, I'm certainly not the bungee jumping type, but um, pretty much my favorite adventures are metaphysical in nature. And I think exploring that world is something where that comes in tremendously. And then expression is easy to understand. Can communion be with those who I'm closest with? You know, my children, my my partner, Jason, is. can it be that? aspect of my life? Oh, sure. Yes. Yes. It's just a sense of being surrounded by your people and uh, connecting with them. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, it definitely makes sense to me. Definitely. And people with high adventure needs love excitement, but what excites you could be different than what excites someone else. I have a low adventure need. I don't need a lot of excitement. So people are not all the same in this regard. Okay. Life quadrants is a simple idea that says that when we get together in groups, we tend to take one of four jobs. So let's say you, you're with three other friends and, and you're planning to see a movie. The love position person is the initiator, and that might be the person who suggests the movie in the first place. You tend to do the knowledge position, which is also a common position for sages, in that you would provide information to the group. You would suggest a good movie or you would provide information about how to get there, uh, maybe a shortcut, that sort of thing. The person in the power position would be the one who's always saying, "Okay, come on, let's stop talking and get in the car and go. And the support person is the person who would maybe get popcorn for everyone or, or mediate disputes. I definitely wouldn't be the one to drive. I wouldn't enjoy that part. I definitely see myself as the knowledge person. Definitely. So now we come to the seven overleaves, and there's seven of each. The most internal one, maybe the most important one, but not the most obvious one, is your goal. The goal is what motivates you through the lifetime, and it shapes the kinds of experiences you will tend to have in that lifetime. You and I both have a goal called acceptance. 30% of humans have a goal of acceptance. 40% of humans have a goal of growth. So that's already up to 70% for two of the seven goals. And then the rest are are scattered among reevaluation, discrimination, submission, dominance, and flow. So let's say if you have a goal of growth, which is the most common one, then you are motivated to have new experiences. 
you are always looking for a new language to learn, a new cuisine to try, a new place to travel to, a new class to take. People with a goal of growth, again, 40% of us are busy people. They like to be busy. They like to have a lot of irons in the fire. They do well with that. Occasionally, they will need to slide or temporarily move across to the opposite reevaluation where they slow things down because they've gotten themselves overstimulated. But for people in growth, that will just be a temporary respite. For those of us with the goal of acceptance, we have a very different life. In acceptance, we tend to create experiences that we cannot change, that no matter how hard we work, it's going to be what it is, and our option is to rebel against it or to make peace with it. It's a like it or lump it lifetime. So for me, for example, my mother died when I was eight. It was, you know, a, a, a devastating and pivotal experience in my life. And I could fight it and fight it and fight it, or I could make peace with it. That was my option. Whereas someone with the goal of growth will tend to, let's say they face bankruptcy. But if they work really, really, really hard, they can overcome the problem. So, well, you know, we all have experiences that we have to work hard to overcome. But in general, with the goal of acceptance, your life is built around things that your uh, the object lesson is to make peace with it. If you have a goal of flow, then you will get the best results, neither by working excessively hard nor by making peace with it, what you will do in flow is learn how to let go and let God. So you're sensing the current of life moving beneath you. You let it take you uh, where you need to go, and you let the universe handle things for you. And that works really well if you have a goal of flow, and it will work rather poorly for you if you have a goal of growth. So uh, often in New Age circles, you hear people advise you to let go and let God. Well, it doesn't work equally well for everyone. So it's good to know what your goal is. That's really fascinating. Um, how does flow work for people who are, their goal is acceptance? Well, um, as long as you can make peace with what is. Hmm. Um, and you can also sense the underlying flow of things. I think it works fine. But in general, your life isn't going to look that way so often. People with a goal of flow are always telling me things like, oh, I was down to my last dollar and suddenly I got this check in the mail. <laughs> or, you know, uh, this person gave me a free place to stay while, while her house sold for a year and I didn't have to pay rent. And um, they just, their outer life tends to go really well when they let go. If you have a goal of growth and you get into trouble, what will work best for you is to work your ass off. Okay. That makes total sense. And I think we all can understand who we've met who's been in flow. <laughs> right. And so in acceptance, we're going to get the best results by making peace with what is. Okay. 
making peace. If you have a goal of dominance, you will naturally find yourself in leadership positions, even if you don't like being a leader. If you're in submission, you're going to be attracted to causes that you can devote yourself to. If you're in discrimination, you're going to always be looking to differentiate uh, the wheat from the chaff. If you have a goal of reevaluation, you basically just want things to be really quiet so you can veg. Okay. Because generally in reevaluation, you're healing things from past lives. That makes sense. Attitude is how you look at the world. And you and I also share the same attitude. We are idealists. And idealists look at the world in terms of how things could be made better. And we do this with, with cheerfulness and optimism. So everything we see, we're always thinking in the back of our mind, well, if this were tweaked, this could be better, or this could be improved, or this would be a better governmental policy, or, or uh, this would be a prettier color for this curtain, or we could paint this wall. This We're always seeing everything in those terms. Okay, yeah, I definitely understand that. Um, Stoic is an interesting one that's there. Stoic, it helps us to understand. We always meet Stoics and Cynics and different people. And there's a place for everyone, huh, Shepard? Absolutely. The Stoic has a life of tranquility where she sees that the outer world is not really that important to her and that what she really wants to do is just dwell in this sort of padded buffer zone where, um, you know, whatever is out there is okay. Uh, spiritualists look at the world in terms of possibility. Everything looks possible to the spiritualist. You'll notice that it's directly under the role of priest. They're both cardinal on the inspiration axis, so it operates a lot like the role of priest. The spiritualist um, can be very inspiring to other people saying, oh, but you could do anything. The trick for spiritualist is to check it out and see if it really holds water. Just like the trick for the idealist is to validate the good idea will actually work. The skeptic looks at things uh, with an investigative eye. Skeptics uh, make excellent scientists and reporters. They don't take things on face value. It's intellectual because it is uh, on the expression axis. And uh, the skeptic uh, just tests things to see if they are what they say they are. Uh, the cynic is similar to the skeptic, but the cynic is a tire kicker. The cynic pours acid on the metal to see if it uh, if it's any good. In the negative pole, the cynic denigrates. It's like the acid eats all the way through the thing, and the cynic in the negative pole just thinks that everything is shit all the time and doesn't give things a chance. Cynic is probably the most difficult overleaf uh, on a chart. It can make for... Um, an extremely negative outlook on life. But in the positive poll, uh, the cynic simply uh, does his job of testing things. And when things test out fine, then, then they work out fine. They will tend to contradict you a lot. So whatever you say to them, they'll say the opposite to see if you can prove what you're saying. <laughs> but um, their more negative outlook on life does not make them unhappy the way that it would make you or me unhappy. Uh, they can do it playfully. A lot of uh, comedians are sages who are cynics or skeptics. 
Oh, definitely. I can see yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, realists just see facts, more or less, uh, all being uh, neutral and equal. And the pragmatist looks at things not in terms of of um, whether it's uh, true or not, but what's most useful. Okay. Which leads us to mode. There are seven modes, just like the other overleaves. You are in passion mode. In passion mode, you do things with 100% commitment or not at all. You throw your heart and soul into everything you do, and if you can't do that, you just won't do it at all. That might be one reason you don't finish things, because your passion runs out. <laughs> That's what I was connecting up. I definitely see that. And if I can't do it in my passionate mode, I, I, I take off. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the opposite one to that is reserve mode. In reserve mode, the person tries to control all of the outgoing energy in the same way a ballet dancer tries to control every muscle of her body to make something beautiful and contained and reserved. In passion, it's the lack of control of your inner flow. It's just like, I want to jump in with both feet like Howard Hughes, the puppy dog, and splash around in the puddle. Now, um, in the positive pole of passion, self-actualization, you pour yourself in so fully that you self-actualize. In the negative pole, identification, you lose yourself. You lose yourself in that relationship. You lose yourself in that project. You forget to sleep and eat and take care of yourself. Um, you, f you forget about what you want and what you need, and you're just so, so totally consumed with the other thing. And so when that happens, you want to add some reserve back in, some control, and make a choice and get in touch with, what do you need? What do you want? It's rather like if you want to save someone who's drowning in quicksand, you don't want to jump in the quicksand with them. You want to find a solid tree and tie a rope around it and then, then try to help the other person get out. I think that's something that we learn at, through experience because I do tend to lose myself uh, completely. And um, learning not to do that is kind of an art form. Exactly. So you might slide to reserve mode and use restraint. It's the positive pull of reserve. Okay. Uh, caution mode is the second most common one among humans. 30% of us are in caution. And uh, it's look before you leap. The negative pull is phobia. And people in caution mode can get so paralyzed by fear of making the wrong choice that they don't make any choice at all. But in the positive pole, the liberation, the caution mode person is simply making thoughtful, careful choices. The opposite is uh, power mode, where uh, the person bears down, uh, even if she's not trying to. A person in power mode comes on strong with authority. It looks like she knows what she's talking about, and it's often chosen for a lifetime where you really need people to listen to you and take you seriously. Uh, the negative pull of that is oppression, where you come on too strong. And again, you may not realize that you're doing that because it just exudes out of you. It's the sage position mode, and so it's about expression. It's something that expresses from you. Um, the next pair on the action axis are perseverance mode and aggression mode. 
because perseverance is ordinal. It contracts down into one activity and you just stay with it until it's done. People in perseverance are excellent at uh, doggedly sticking to a task until it's finished. But the negative pull is they don't know when to let go of a lost cause or, or jump off of, of a sinking ship. The opposite of that is aggression mode because it's cardinal. You do a lot of things at once. You juggle a lot of balls in the air, a lot of irons in the fire. Um, in the positive pull, you're dynamic. The negative pull, you're belligerent. People in aggression mode uh, often relate that they have trouble with their temper. They fly off the handle. That's because they've got all this dynamic energy surging in them all the time. And when it becomes fear-based, which the negative pulls always are, then it can become destructive. So uh, if someone in aggression mode is having a problem with that, uh, he can slide to perseverance and just pick one thing to stick with, kind of get put your eye back on the ball, and it'll help get you organized. Okay. So you feel less flying off the handle. The most common mode is observation mode. 50% of us are in observation. And part of the reason is that from any of the uh, assimilation axis or neutral overleaves, you can slide to any of the others. So if you are like me in observation mode, you can temporarily do aggression or perseverance or power or whatever. And those of us in observation commonly have one or two others that we do like to slide to occasionally. So I temporarily do passion and I temporarily do perseverance once in a while when I need something other than to just step back and observe things. But um, people have often told me that they perceive me as being kind of detached. And a lot of that is observation uh, because that's how you run your energy. You just function by observing things. And that's how you grow, how you learn, how you accept. Um, it's a little bit standing on the sidelines. And it's quite comfortable for someone in, in observation mode where it would not be for someone in passion mode who'd want to jump right in. Shepard, does that tie in with your love of theater? Yes, I do. Um, I do love uh, going to theater. There's observing there. And when I first moved to New York City, I lived there for 10 years. Uh, but for the first three years, I was all eyes. I was just observing all the time. I was just looking at everything. And often when you're in observation mode, you accidentally end up staring at people and you don't realize you're doing that. So uh, I've had to uh, learn to be aware of that. Okay. I tend, I, I, knowing you, uh, you get passionate about the things that interest you, though. Um, I slide to passion mode. Yeah, but it's interesting that things that interest you are things you observe. Yes. <laughs> That's a great insight. Thank you. Okay. That is absolutely true, but I haven't thought of it. <laughs> okay, now we have center. And this is actually one of my favorite parts of the whole chart because uh, what you channeled for me really helped me to understand how I operate. And uh, so why don't we dive into center? Every human being has seven centers or places they can react from. We all have an emotional center and we all have a higher emotional center. Higher, higher centers are the big picture versions. So 
you have your day-to-day emotions like fear, anger, and then you have your higher emotions, which is like altruism or uh, being inspired by the beauty of nature, that sort of thing. We all have an intellectual center where we, for example, can add up numbers in our head. And we all have a higher intellectual center, which is where we see truth and we see how things are connected to each other. And then there are two body centers. One is called the physical center, which is where we experience sensations, uh, our sexuality, uh, the, the pleasure of a massage, and so forth. And then the higher center uh, uh, relative to the body is the moving center. And that's where we move the whole center. But it can also take us into higher energetic states, like if we're having a Reiki treatment or we're meditating, where we feel the energy of our body as a whole moving. And then the the neutral center is called the instinctive center, which is where we store our animal hardwiring, our memories of past trauma, that sort of thing. Four of those seven centers can be practically used as our day-to-day centering where we just normally react to whatever happens. So each of us has one of these four. People are either emotionally centered, intellectually centered, physically centered, or moving centered. Someone who's emotionally centered tends to have watery eyes. That's a good way to spot them. They tend to um, feel things first emotionally. Intellectually centered people like you and me tend to react by immediately analyzing or computing. That'll be the first thing. It may go quickly from there to something else, but that's where it starts. The body centers are, uh, you're either physically centered or moving centered. A person who's physically centered tends to be perceived by others as being uh, more sexual than the rest of us. Uh, They tend to feel things first in their body. So like if they're upset by something, They may not know it intellectually at first, but they feel nauseated or they feel cold or hot or or itchy. So it's all about sensation. A moving-centered person tends to react by taking action. So the uh, moving-centered people make excellent dancers and athletes. So that is their strength. The center can reinforce other things on the chart. So if you're already a sage or a scholar, you've got a strong intellect because you've spent many lifetimes developing it. If you are also intellectually centered, that means that your intellect is going to be right there and you're going to use that for your insights and your knowledge very readily. It's just going to make you all the more verbal. On the other hand, if you're a scholar but you're emotionally centered, you've tied your strong hand behind your back and you're learning to develop your emotions, which may not come very easily to you. Or if you are a priest but you choose a body center, you're going to develop your body more than most priests do because most priests like to be up in the higher realms. So this could be a choice to experience more balance. In my chart, you have, um, so I'm intellectual centered, and then there's the moving part, the aspect aspect to it. Is that how I react to situations after I think about it? Yes. So your, your primary center is pretty fixed. 
you're going to do intellectually center 95% of the time. It's just how you're hardwired. But the part of center is where you tend to go next with it. It's your secondary reaction, and it's more flexible. Your primary center is your switchboard directing your, your next responses to whatever seems to be the most appropriate. More often than not, your thoughts lead way to action, but sometimes they will lead to emotion. Now, I'm intellectually centered in the emotional part, so my thoughts more often give rise to emotions, but your thoughts more often uh, give rise to actions. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm always moving around. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think all the time, but I'm always moving around also. So, exactly. Yeah. Now, you can deliberately choose. You don't want to be stuck in a, a, a repetitive uh, rut where you're intellectual moving, intellectual moving. That's called the trap. So if you're in the trap, you have a, a thought, and then you compulsively act on it, and it just leads to more negative thoughts, which leads to more compulsive actions, which leads to more negative thoughts. That's called the trap. Okay. So if that happens, what you want to do is you want to put your part of center into neutral. So since you're a moving part, what you'd want to do is just go exercise or walk so that you're no longer reacting to your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then think about, okay, what am I really feeling here? What's the emotion that I need uh, to know about? And let the emotion emerge, and that's going to put you into balance. Okay, that makes sense. And I've always been, I do, um, I've always been a huge walker and yoga also, and that helps me tremendously. Yeah, especially since we're both in impatience, which is our chief obstacle. <laughs> the chief obstacle is one of seven uh, belief systems that tends to get us into trouble the most. There are seven, and we all have all seven of them to some degree because we're humans. We all occasionally self-deprecate. We're all occasionally arrogant, self-destructive, greedy, martyred, or stubborn. But our chief one happens to be the same in this lifetime of patience. And impatience is defined as a deep-seated fear of missing out. And so our ego tends to look at things in terms of all the things we've missed out on in life. And we remember all the disappointments and we won't let them go. And um, we get wound up around time and there's never enough time and and, uh, you know, other people have more time than we do. And, uh, and it just leaves us feeling wound up and it makes it difficult to live in the present moment. And so the way to cure that is to photograph the obstacle, whatever your obstacle is. If you can take a picture of it in your mind and say, oh, that's just my impatience. I know it feels very real to me, but it is not real. That's the first step. Then you can do affirmations such as, I remember to breathe. I have all the time in the world. And of course, your yoga and walking are going to be really helpful with that. Okay, that all makes tremendous sense. So we both have impatience, but we have different body types, Shepard. We, well, not entirely. That's true. You're right. Not entirely. Yeah. I'll say a few words about the other obstacles. Okay, great. Self-deprecation is a fear that you're inadequate. And so someone in self-deprecation, you cannot convince them 
that they're beautiful and wonderful and perfect exactly the way they are. They just won't take it in if, if the obstacle is, is uh, intense for them. And so it will lead them to not even try for things that they could do. It makes them feel overwhelmed real, real easily because um, they just don't believe in themselves. Arrogance is the opposite. Arrogance is a fear not of being inadequate, but being criticized by others for being inadequate. So they believe they're perfectly adequate, but others don't know it. But they believe that if others criticize them, they will die. And often this comes from a childhood where um, the adults around them were just mercilessly critical, where they were always judging them, always making fun of them. And they put this show around them that is self-protective and you feel with someone in arrogance that you just can't quite reach them because they've got that brittle shell. So they need to welcome the criticisms of others and find out that, you know what, I didn't die from that. It actually helped me. People in self-destruction often have uh, substance abuse problems. In self-destruction, people usually grew up feeling that there wasn't enough structure around them. Maybe their parents were neglectful. Maybe they were alcoholics. They didn't have anything they could rely on. And they tried to discipline themselves to try to hang on to a certain sense of order. And so people in self-destruction veer from one extreme to another where they're hyper self-disciplined with a stick up their ass veering from that to losing all self-control and maybe binging on alcohol or food or drugs or something like that. And uh, it can can lead to your death. It can be uh, very destructive. Uh, Greed is the opposite one. Greed um, or self-destruction, you're always sort of losing your control. Greed is a hoarder. Greed is always feels like there's not enough. It's a fear of loss or lack. Like there's a big hole inside that you can't fill in. You're always trying to fill it with stuff like money or, or sex or whatever, but it never gets filled up because it's, it's faulty reasoning to begin with. Martyrdom is the opposite of impatience. And the martyred person feels that she has to prove her worth over and over again. She fears that she is worthless. And because they're opposites, uh, martyrdom and impatience can um, veer from one to another. So let's say we who are impatient are stuck in a traffic jam. There's nothing we can do about it. We'll start to feel like we're a victim to the traffic jam. We'll start to be like a martyr, like we're suffering so much because we're stuck in traffic. So those two can go back and forth uh, to each other. So martyrs need to learn that they have worth and they don't have to earn brownie points to prove it. Stubbornness is the most common one. Stubborn people fear change. Um, Often as children, they had changes forced on them without their ability to participate or to um, have a say in things. And so now their attitude is, no one's going to tell me what to do. If it's your idea, not my idea, I'm going to going to um, uh, put my foot down and I'm just not going to budge. And because it's the neutral obstacle on the assimilation axis, the far right-hand side one, it's kind of invisible to them. People will swear, there's even a t-shirt that says, I'm not stubborn. 
They never think they're stubborn. They think that they're just standing up for themselves or standing up for what's right. And yet other people can just feel that glass wall. You just can't get through them. They are not going to budge. And it could be about taking an action that wasn't their idea, but it could also be changing their opinion about something. So that can be very difficult to deal with, but they're all equally difficult if they're bad enough. Okay. So body type. Yeah, body type. Body type is the influence of the celestial bodies on your physical body. And this is a little different from the other overleaves because uh, we all have more than one. It'd be very rare for someone to have 100% one body type influence. You've got one that's the most, and then you've got a secondary, and you might have a third or fourth one in there too. Body type tells you what other types of bodies you are attracted to. You are attracted to your opposite body type. This is called body type attraction. So it's very useful information to know, but it also explains the personality of your physical body, which is different from the personality of your psyche. You have a dominant mercurial with a secondary of lunar. My predominant one is lunar, so we do have that in common. My secondary is martial, and my tertiary one is Venusian. A mercurial body is uh, named after the planet Mercury, and Mercury in astrology is the messenger. Uh, mercurial body is a good body type for a sage. It makes you quick on your feet. It makes you think quickly. It makes you react quickly. It makes you wound up in the negative pole. It can make you frenetic, nervous, high strung. Uh, because in the positive pole, mercurials are agile. It makes yoga really natural for you, something you, that you can easily master. Uh, someone like me has a very stiff body. Uh, Yoga comes to me with great, great difficulty. So there are all sorts of activities that you're suited for based on your body type and others that you are not based on your body type. Mercurial is attracted to jovial. That's opposite. Why are they attracted? Mercurial is, number one, active. It's a body that likes to move. You're also in the moving part of the intellectual center. Two reasons why you're on the go all the time. It's also a negative charged body type, meaning that the body notices the flaws in things. It's a sensitive body type. The third is that it's a feminine body type. It receives energy rather than transmits it. Jovial is the opposite on every one of those three things. Jovial is passive. It doesn't like to move. It likes to just sit there. Jovial is positive. It looks on the bright side of it. And jovial is masculine. And so if you are in a relationship, it doesn't have to be a sexual one, although body type attraction is helpful in sexual relationships. When you're in a relationship with someone of the opposite body type, it's like plugging a plug into an electrical circuit. Electrical, uh, uh, plugging a plug into a, a plug. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. A jack into a plug. It makes an electrical circuit. And so there is a natural excitement just to being with someone who has the opposite body type to yours. Your secondary is lunar. Lunar is the most passive body type, and it waters down 
your activity of mercurial. It's a calming influence. So it makes you a less frenetic, less wound up than you would be if you, say, had another active body type in there. Lunar is also negative charge. Negative charged bodies, yours is 100% negative, means that you feel everything. You are hypersensitive. You, and, and I'm like this too, you are the princess and the pea. You can feel that pea under the mattress, even though there's 20 mattresses between you and the pea. You feel it. You feel everything. Hypersensitive means that you have to have strategies for protecting yourself. And this is just through the body. And as a sage, you're also very sensitive. But this, uh, this certainly adds to that. Lunar is attracted to Saturnian. Saturnian uh, Saturnians have a strong bone structure. They can be thin. So your ideal body type attraction is uh, jovial lunar. Did we do your partner's um, chart? Uh, no, we didn't. Um, <laughs> it'd be a fun thing to do, though. Jovial Saturnian, you mean, would be my, uh, yeah. Yes, would jo- be your, your maximum body type attraction. Yeah. No, I, I sometimes wonder what, what Jason is in body type attraction. It's very interesting. And uh, it's only really one aspect of a relationship because there's the deep um, soul bonds that people have that Absolutely. are very important. I have an article on my website called Why We're Attracted. And I talk about various things on the chart and off the chart that could bring people together. There are many, many factors Sages tend to adore artisans. Uh, priests tend to adore uh, servers and scholars. Um, uh, certain overleaves tend to get along together uh, really well. You and I have a goal of acceptance, so it's really important to us to be with people who are easygoing and, and nice. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's many, many factors of attraction. There's, of course, the opposite male-female energy ratio. Having a similar frequency can be helpful. There's astrological factors. But perhaps most important of all, as you alluded to, it's what the soul bonds are. That's that's going to be the most dominant thing in attraction. If you have something you're supposed to do together with someone else, that will be very attractive to you. Yes. Yes. Maybe another time you'll come back and we'll talk about soul contracts, which is one of my most favorite subjects. So I'd love to. Okay. Um, that would be fantastic. Uh, soul age. Now, Shepard, you're an old uh, soul? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm at seventh level old. You're at seventh level mature. And so we have that in common, too. We're both at seventh levels. Okay. And people who are at the same levels are having a lot of the same lessons. So I mentioned uh, at the beginning and the first uh, podcast that Uh, We go through five soul ages on the physical plane, and then there's two, making seven total, that we complete generally when we're done with the physical plane, Uh, one on the astral, one on the causal plane. And uh, the uh, mature soul cycle is about relationships. The old soul cycle is about a larger perspective. Each of the soul ages is divided into seven levels. At first level, you're sticking your toe in the wall. At second level, you're kind of halfway in the water and still half in the old soul age. At third level, you're totally submerged. You, you, you dived into the water and you're totally there, but you haven't quite 
assimilated it yet. You're working real hard to get it. And at fourth level of that soul age, you pop out of the water and you say, okay, I've got it now. At fifth level, you splash someone else. You're having fun with it. At sixth level, they splash you back. And at seventh <laughs> level, you get back to the shore. <laughs> okay. At six levels of the soul age, you tend to uh, pay back karma and complete agreements with other people that you have not done so far in that soul age. And so it can take many, many lifetimes to complete six levels. It's about karma with other people. Seventh levels are about self-karma. It's about completing your internal issues. It's about um, consolidating things like what I deserve, that I can have love in my life, that I can be nice to myself, that I don't have to beat myself up about things. Um, you're reviewing all the lessons of, of the mature soul cycle. You're reviewing everything that you've learned about relationships and you're practicing them. And especially because you're a sage and you love to teach, you are teaching at least one other person, but maybe many people, all that you've learned in your mature cycle about relationships, about going deep into the self, about love, and so forth. And so it's the same thing for me at, at seventh old. I started life at sixth level old, and I was paying back some very painful karmas, including the death of my mother that was karmic for me. And then around age 30, I segued into seventh old, and I started uh, focusing on lessons about uh, loving myself, accepting myself, and reviewing everything I've learned as an old soul and teaching that to other people. So seventh level, seven is the king level. It's the time of mastery, and it's a time of teaching and, and training other people in what you've learned to make their path easier. That's very interesting that you can pinpoint an age where you changed, because I remember um, in my lifetime, needing to complete karma with a lot of people and very attracted to those situations that gave me opportunity to complete karma. And then there was a sense of freedom when I finished that. Um, and I was able to put my energies elsewhere. Yes. Well, uh, we could check with Michael and see if you started out, uh, at the tail end of six mature, um, uh, at the beginning of this lifetime. It is also true that if you have any karmas to do, you will almost always do them in your teens and 20s. And that's why they're so dramatic, because, um, first of all, you're young enough to have the energy to handle it. And uh, later in life, you tend to work on other types of lessons. That makes sense. The drama of the teen years, huh? Right. Right. And because you're less mature, you're more likely to um, to complete a karma and you're not going to step in there with too much wisdom to make sure you don't do it. Although there are ways that you can complete negative karmas in positive ways. So, for example, let's say um, I killed you in a past life. And then in this lifetime, this urge comes up in you. You want to kill me. And let's say you're only, you know, 20 years old and you're a guy with a lot of testosterone and you own a gun. You just might do that. But if you're an older soul and you don't want to be killing people to pay back karma, um, you could let me save your life. And that would be 
that would fulfill the karmic debt, but it would be doing it in a very positive, rich way for both of us. I like that. That's very beautiful, Shepard. Yeah. Wow. I have enjoyed doing these podcasts with you. They have been absolutely amazing. Um, as everyone can tell, we are friends, um, though we've never met in person in this lifetime. <laughs> but we are old friends, and I am. thank you so much for all of this. I'd really like everyone to visit Shepard's website, summerjoy.com, to learn more about the Michael teaching and teachings and Shepard's work. You're a very prolific writer, a very beautiful writer, and I'd like to share with everyone some of the titles that you've written. Journey of Your Soul, a channel explores the Michael teachings, Growing Through Joy, Loving from Your Soul, Creating Powerful Relationships, and then your foray into humor, enlightenment for nitwits. Uh, all of it very wonderful, and um, I thank you so deeply for your your offering to the world. Uh, you are such an amazing teacher. Oh, thank you so much, Caroline. And I'd also like to remind listeners that I have a newsletter called Perspectives. If you go to my website and scroll down just a little bit, there's a place where you can sign up for it. Okay. Well, I express a deep thank you to Shepard and to Michael for sharing your wisdom with us today. I invite everyone to visit summerjoy.com to learn more about the Michael teachings and Shepard's work. And I express deep gratitude to everyone who has joined us. A huge thank you to Brian, Zach, and Synergy for the use of their song, Embrace the Change. Sending love from my home to yours. I am Pleiadian Emissary of Light, Caroline Roth.